edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nahum Siegel Network. And if you listen to the last edition of Novak Now that ran last week, uh, you heard me say that this was going to be, uh, that last week was going to be a game changer kind of week in Israel. And it certainly was. And um, there were, there was one thing I was expecting to happen that I thought would make it a game changer week, but that two other major events took place to put a major exclamation point on my prediction uh, that it was going to be a game-changer week. So before I pat myself on the back for being correct about how much of a big week it was, I have to admit to everyone that I didn't expect a couple of the other things that made it even more dramatic. So um, let's go through them before um, we forget. And I want to make sure that everyone has a good perspective on Three, three, I was just three major events. And again, I thought that one of them was going to happen. But, uh, but there were three major events in Israel. And of course, they have a major connection to the United States, uh, at least re really all three of them. So this is not just an Israel um, t uh, topic here, a subject here. Let's go through them. And I want to make sure that everyone listening has the proper perspective that sadly, once again, most of the people you hear telling you about it, whether they're in the news media, whether it's your rabbi at shul, whether it's um, maybe a professor, uh, there's a good chance you're not going to get the proper perspective on all three, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I say that not tongue-in-cheek, because I know that there are things where, where opinion plays a role, and it's important when you have an opinion to admit that it's your opinion, even if you feel it's, it's the truth. But there are times when there are just basic facts that are left out of what is a, a, a consensus way of reporting a story or telling about a story that it, when they're left out that much, you, you know, you, you have to call that out and say, like, look, this is an objective fact that you're leaving out and you don't have to come to a different conclusion, but you cannot leave that out in your equation. So let's start with the, the obvious big story. Sadly, this is the big story that everyone's making the most, giving the most attention to. And that's because, again, of the, of the bias that we have in the news business and, and also really in politics for negative stories. So the indictment that came against Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, not completely unexpected in the way that it came down, but remember, as I spoke about it last week, there were a number of charges that he was facing, and the bribery charge was the most severe. And had he been charged with some of the other charges and not charged with bribery, it would have been a very major positive story for Netanyahu, but he was charged with all the all the crimes. And this will now go to a real judicial process. There's going to be an actual case. This isn't, you know, an indictment is not a conviction, as many of you certainly know. Um, I have looked at these indictments for a long time. Uh, there are some parts of them that are based on a little bit of flimsy evidence. Um, there's a lot of evidence that people who testified in these cases were intimidated, and that needs to be looked into. Um, there's also, and this is similar to what President Trump is going through, there's also a lot of stuff in these charges about things that never actually happened. Uh, attempted, he's charged maybe with attempting to uh, accept a bribe or to, or to uh, give somebody a, a political favor in return for something. Um, and a lot of those cases, it's acknowledged that the favor didn't occur, either for Netanyahu or for the person who supposedly bribed him, or the organization that supposedly bribed him. You can read about 
the details of these cases in a lot of different places. But what's important to remember is that these are not open and shut, easy cases. Um, there are definitely some strong arguments against uh, anyone's guilt or innocence here. And, you know, they also come under a shroud of, a shroud of uh, uncertainty because, as many of Netanyahu's supporters have said, and he has said himself, the political left in Israel, which is still very decently represented in the bureaucracy, in the civil service of Israel, has not been able to get, win an election. They can't win an election. And when you have that kind of a situation where, you know, you have a prime minister who's serving for the longest consecutive amount of time, which Netanyahu has been doing, and of course he's also the longest serving overall prime minister because he had a three-year term before this 10-year stretch, a uh, 10-year plus stretch that many of you may remember back in 1996 through 1999. So you, you have to you have to keep that um, in, in, in the back of your mind, because when those things happen, uh, you have to wonder why indictments are going on when they're not winning elections. That said, for those of you who know your history, long-term running democratic governments, whether they're in parliamentary democracies uh, like Israel, where you can have, where there aren't any term limits, or whether in the United States where we do have term limits, but sometimes you have one party that controls the White House for a very long time. Now, that hasn't really happened for a long time. We haven't had, in the United States, we haven't had the same party win three straight presidential elections since Ronald Reagan was elected, re-elected, and then George H.W. Bush was elected. Um, but you had, in the United States, during the Roosevelt administration, four straight administration, four straight terms won by, by, by Roosevelt, he obviously did not even barely begin to start. He, he only started just barely his fourth term. Harry Truman finished out that fourth term, and then he won election in 1948. So that was five straight terms for the Democrats. So what I'm trying to say is that it, we've had a long history in Western democracies of long-running governments, and eventually towards the end, corruption does start to play a role. Uh, it's just one of those things that happens when you have long-running governments. Also happened in Canada as well. Um, and again, in these cases, Harry Truman was never accused of any personal uh, corruption. And in Canada, Stephen Harper, who was prime minister from the mid-90s all the way through 2015, he also personally not, never really uh, re reliably accused of any, even accused of any kind of corruption. But people in their governments were. So that those kinds of things do happen, and it'd be silly not to acknowledge it. Now, I think that as a private citizen, Benjamin Netanyahu has every right to, to fight these charges, and if he were a private citizen, he probably, these cases probably wouldn't go very far. Because you really need to have much more strong evidence of some kind of corruption and some kind of thing being done in return for some kind of illicit favor-giving or money uh, changing hands. Um, to, oh, to quickly summarize the, really the main case is that you know, pre uh, uh, allegedly Prime Minister Netanyahu gave a broadcast license to an organization in return for favorable press coverage, uh, which he didn't get. And it's very, very hard to prove that the broadcast license wasn't going to come anyway. Didn't need Netanyahu's help. So th there, if he were a private citizen, this would, I don't think this case would go very far. I really don't. It would be, very, it would be rough. But... He's not a private citizen, and that's why we really have to consider a couple of things. Now, look, uh, uh, no prime minister, no president should be above the law. 
but they're not beneath the law either. They should be afforded a chance to defend themselves. But that's true on a legal, on a legal basis. But I also want to talk about a practical basis here. And I'm very, very supportive of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu on the, on the most, for the most part, for his policies on the most part. Only a few minor policies of his have, have I think, have been, been wrong. I think that there's been too much. If you want to ask me what I think his biggest failing has been, I think he has compromised too much with the ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, sometimes I, th I think that he could have gotten away without uh, compromising with, with them uh, in a way that I think he could have still moved forward. For, I think, with, you know, the most vibrant part of the state of Israel are the modern Orthodox young men and women who now are in every part of Israeli society when they weren't before, including the armed forces. Many people will tell you that the IDF was reinvigorated by these, by these observant, not ultra-Orthodox, well, ultra but definitely by definition Orthodox in that they keep kosher and keep Shabbat and, 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 and other commandments and wear kippot and the whole thing if they're men and, and, and dress a certain way if they're women. They, they are a, a very big shot in the arm to the state of Israel in every aspect of the state of Israel, including the economic part of the state of Israel. And I think that the two most the two most vibrant sections of the of the Israeli population are that modern Orthodox group, and also a lot of the Russian immigrants. But you can't even call immigrants anymore. Now they're already the children and grandchildren of some of these immigrants who came in the late 1980s, early 90s. And I don't think that they are given enough of their due. I don't think that the leadership of the state of Israel, no matter who it's been, has been able to say like, look, we, we do have a tremendously supportive of the state of Israel group of, 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 of very Orthodox Jews, they're just not black hat wearing Orthodox Jews. And to me, this has been something that hasn't been very well handled by Netanyahu. I think he hasn't been able to find that middle road between secularist, anti-religious policies that are overly nasty and not productive, like I think Abigdor Lieberman's push for a full draft for the Haredim is, is ludicrous. For one thing being that the Israel doesn't need as many bodies in the armed forces right now as they have had in the past because of technology, because of the overall population growth. Will they in the future? Yes, it's definitely an issue in the future that if the ultra-Orthodox community continues to grow at a faster pace than the rest of the, uh, of the population, that's going to have to be addressed. But for now, it's not something worth toppling governments for, but, but that's exactly what Avigdor Lieberman has done. It's a silly issue. Now, he feels that Another issue, reason that he's toppled the governments and forced these elections is because he doesn't think that Netanyahu has been tough enough on Gaza. And that's a different argument to have. I don't think that's as outrageous a position, but it's also not one where Israel can appear to be weak uh, internally. They can't really have a, a, a one group that says, well, you're not doing anything right in Gaza when there actually are military act activities going on against uh, Hamas and, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad positions in Gaza. So I, I think Lieberman's been way too far and way too radically opposed to, to certain things as a, as a leader of, of, a, of a small party. I mean, I think they have seven or eight seats in, in the last election. They had five in the one before. None of these elections seem to be holding, though, so these numbers may not mean anything in a couple of months. But then the, the, there, the, there needs to be a middle ground between that and also what we're hearing from the ultra-Orthodox parties, UTJ and, and Shas who seem to be pretty obstinate in their own ways as well. And I'm saying this as a, not in a pessimistic way, but in an optimistic way, because I think that if offered a third option, 
we might be able to make some headway here. I think that if UTJ and Shas are offered other positions of national service as opposed to military for some of their young men and maybe even some of their young women, I think that they would accept it. It's worth a try. It's worth a try. I think that if some part of the, the Russian Jewish community in Israel was given a little bit more representation, maybe a little bit, maybe an office in the ministry, something like that, something to help improve the education, which I know the Russian immigrants in Israel have been clamoring for an improvement in the secular education in Israel, which frankly is not all that it's cracked up to be. The tech success and the other success that Israel has had economically is more an offshoot of the connections and the innovations of the Israel Defense Forces and less that of the Education Department. That's an entirely different edition of Novak now that I would like to do in the coming weeks about how the IDF is really the lifeblood of the country, not only in the defense, which would be we certainly would guess, but also economically. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to go too far into what I think Netanyahu's failings have been. Certainly there have been more than just a few for anyone who has been prime minister, but I think overall he's been a very strong prime minister, and overall I think he's still been the best leader for Israel in quite some time. But we cannot ignore the fact that having an indictment over your head, no matter how unfairly it's been put on his forehead, and I think that, listen, 60-40, I think it's unfair this indictment process. I think it's been generally unfair, with some exceptions, and clearly there are some people involved in this process who are not just political acts. But for the most part, I think it has been generally unfair. That said, it's just very hard to be a prime minister when you have that indictment label on you. And I understand that was what the opponents of Netanyahu have been trying to do all along. They want to create a bumper sticker and a talking point that says, yes, but you are under indictment, so you can't do it. it. It'll be the answer to every single thing that he says. And it's so similar to what we're going to have here in the United States if the House of Representatives indeed votes to impeach President Trump, even though we know the Senate would quickly dispatch the, 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 uh, the trial and, 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 and not convict him. We, 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 all, we know that almost for sure. But the idea being that they can print up a bumper sticker the 2020 election and say, how can you vote for a president who was impeached? And you know, they'll pull that. And, the, and we'll see how well it works for them. Right now, the poll's not, not looking so great for this impeachment process. I think the public is tuned out, starting to tune out, and not really supportive of the whole process. Understanding that there's an election coming. Understanding that if you're really a smart Democrat political analyst or campaign manager or somebody like that, you're not happy about this impeachment process. And I'll tell you why, because it's taking the air out of the Democratic presidential campaign. The Democratic presidential campaign doesn't need to articulate the reasons or the, the things they don't like about Donald Trump. Everybody knows that anyone who really dislikes Donald Trump is, is, is going to vote for one of these Democrats. The problem is the Democrats need to get some kind of positive message going for why you should vote for one of them. And this impeachment trial and process has taken valuable, precious, crucial weeks and months out of off the calendar for any Democrat trying to do that, including Joe Biden, including Elizabeth Warren, or anyone, any other of the, the front runners for president. So this is a major problem for them. And it's a major problem for Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party, which you heard me say many times here on Novak Now. Their only reason to exist is to oust Netanyahu. And now the courts and the legal system might be doing it for them. And before you applaud, if you're a blue and white party supporter, understand that they've just taken your reason to exist away. 
if you have elections now, let's say we have a third election in Israel, and then once again, it's, it's the blue and white party basically making its entire platform based on getting rid of Netanyahu, there's going to be a lot of voters who are going to say, like, well, he's going anyway. He's been indicted. The chances that he steps down now are higher. Uh, maybe I don't vote for you now. Maybe we spread our votes to some other folks. We'll have to see what happens. We know that Likud is going to, apparently, we was reportedly going to have an internal primary in six weeks. Even if Netanyahu wins it, if it's a slim victory for him, it's going to be very, very hard for him to continue as the Likud party leader and, of course, as prime minister. And again, I think it's completely unfair, and I do think that he should fight these charges as a private citizen. I just don't know if he has the bandwidth, or anyone has the bandwidth, to do it and, and remain an effective prime minister. We'll see what happens. I'm not in telling President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu to step down, but I am acknowledging, and I think that anyone, even the biggest Netanyahu supporter, would be a fool not to admit that this is going to be a very big distraction and it's going to be another burden. And, he, and not considering that and making it all about the trumped-up charges against him, and some of them truly are, is a mistake because to be a true leader of a state like Israel, which really is involved in existential threats all the time, is facing those kinds of things. It's something that cannot be ignored. And I don't want to be such a, you don't want to be such an ardent Netanyahu supporter and such an ardent Likud supporter to ignore that. All right, that was the big news that everyone, you know, that got most, the most attention. But to me, I think the mo it, just as significant, just as significant was this incredible announcement by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo that the United States was no longer going to consider Israeli settlements, Jewish settlements, civilian settlements on the West Bank to be inherently illegal. Now, for those of you who may have missed the last few weeks of the Obama administration, that's exactly the position that the, the United States government shifted to in those last few days and hours of the Obama administration. It was a real scandal that I wrote about. I wrote a column about how anyone of the many Democrats who felt that President Obama was good for Israel, and there are a lot who, who feel that way. I, I think that they're completely wrong. But for those who, who say that and said that and continue to say that, uh, they're either ignoring what happened in December 2016 or they're lying about it and leaving it out, or, or they don't know about it. Um, but what happened, it was basically the United States, after years and years and years at the UN of, of vetoing and blocking as a permanent member of the Security Council, vetoing or blocking resolutions that declared the settlements de facto illegal, sight unseen, illegal. The United States for, for many, many years had blocked and vetoed those kinds of resolutions. This time, President Obama and John Kerry made sure that the United States abstained, allowing the, that resolution to pass. And it was a disgrace on many levels because it was clearly meant to push against Israel. It was clearly meant to be a kick in the, in, in the face to pro-Israel types who had maybe opposed President Obama for, for many of the years that he was president. And despite the fact that, that so many Jews voted for him. Um, but remember, in the United States, you really have to understand now that pro-Israel support now is mo that, that really, in, in, in a fact, in a way that really matters at the ballot box, ballot box is coming from evangelical Christians. And when you remember that, and, you and I, would, I, would, I would really urge people listening to continue to remember that. When you remember that, you realize why President Obama and John Kerry did what they did in December of 2016. But it was also an outrage from a legal standpoint, because my friends... When you hear terms like occupied territory and you're talking about Israel, understand that that is not true. 
And I'm not talking about because the Bible says it's our land. Or any, I'm talking about from an international law standpoint. The West Bank is not occupied territory. It is disputed territory. And it, it is important. And that doesn't, I don't care what the UN says. International law makes it very clear that it is disputed territory, not occupied territory. And you need to understand your history. Before the Israelis had de facto control of the West Bank after the Six-Day War, the Jordanians had control over it and they had no legal right to be occupy that land either. So the Jordanians had no right to be in control of that, uh, of that land. You could argue that the Ottoman Empire did because the Ottoman Empire doesn't exist anymore and didn't exist anymore in 1967. For more than 50 years it was gone. So this has been disputed territory, and again, disputed territory where Jews and some Arabs have some historical connections to. In some cases, strong historical connections. But this is disputed territory, and it is not occupied territory. And to de facto call any Jewish settlement in the West Bank illegal just because it exists is, is wildly unfair, wildly against uh, what, the, what the law tells us. And it doesn't matter what the UN agreed to or had a resolution. That, that doesn't matter. It doesn't change the facts on the ground. And for Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and obviously the Trump administration to bring us back to a point where we were for 35, 40 years before this midnight change by the Obama administration in 2016 is a very, very good thing. And it's good for many, many reasons. One is it shows a, a more practical and favorable approach to Israel by this administration than the previous one. So thank goodness for that. But secondly, as I wrote about and I have continued to write about, I want everyone to understand your history. Now, again, I, t I began this program of Novak now here in the Nachum Siegel promising to give you a perspective that you're not hearing elsewhere. And when I, when I say that, it, it's not just to be like, oh, here's a crazy idea from left field. Here's something that's a little bit more rooted in fact. Folks, I want you to remember this very, very clearly. While everyone else says that this move is going to cause more terrorism and more killing, which, by the way, we haven't seen in the four days since. Same old, same old. The fact is that every time the United States has backed Israel in an unequivocal and strong way, it has ultimately led to more peace in the region, not less. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive because we hear about all these terrorists saying, I hate America and I hate, I mean, hate America for supporting Israel. Yeah, that's because we're giving a microphone to the craziest elements out there. And even though they might have a lot of followers, it doesn't mean that they actually are representative of what really happens. I'm not saying the people on the Arab street are loving this and are gonna love it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the leadership of the countries in the region start to wake up to realities when the United States helps them do that. Anwar Sadat decided to make peace with Israel not only because of the loss of the, eventual loss by, by Egypt in the, in the Yom Kippur War, but because the United States in Operation Nickelgrass under President Nixon resupplied the Israeli military in their hour of need. And what that told Sadat, who clearly wasn't delusional, what that told Sadat was, hey, the United States is never going to abandon these guys. And as long as the United States, the strongest country in the world, is always going to back Israel, I should make peace with them because I'm never going to get, I'm never going to destroy them. And after the first Gulf War, when Israel took those Scud missiles from Saddam Hussein and didn't counterattack Iraq like they promised, which took a lot of restraint and a lot of faith in their relationship with, with the United States. The United States ended up supplying Israel even better militarily, giving them 
a, a short-term amount of other types of aid as well, which they don't get anymore. And the king of Jordan at the time, the late King Hussein, took a look at that and said, you know, my friendship with Iraq is stupid now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now make peace with Israel. And I know the Jordanian-Israeli relationship right now is at one of those low points. But, I, but, but it's not great. But the fact is, is that they, they've had a workable agreement between the two of them for 25 years. Hey, th there was a de facto sort of agreement between the two of them even before that. I understand that. But the taking the extra step of signing a peace agreement had a lot to do with Israel's conduct and the United States backing of Israel during the Gulf War. At, especially after the Gulf War, saying, hey, here's how we're going to reward you for not jeopardizing the coalition of, of American and Arab countries that were going up against Saddam Hussein. And the United States' cooperation with Israel, especially in the development of the F-35, which you've heard me talk about a lot here on the Novak Now uh, program on the Nahum Siegel Network, has also led Saudi Arabia to solidifying and adding to its cooperative agreements with Israel as well. So. The point is, when the United States stands with Israel, publicly makes a very big move, whether it's with a weapon, whether it's with a peace treaty, whether it's with other types of support, whether it's with moving the embassy to Jerusalem, whether it's with agree, uh, 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 recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and now with the, with the settlement statement, I don't think it will be overnight, but within a couple of years, I think we will see even more cooperation between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors. Because the United States has made it clear that this is a bond that's not going anywhere. And I think a big reason why we saw continued hostilities and other problems, especially the Iranian, the, the increase in Iranian-backed hostilities against Israel in previous years, and now sadly still continuing now, is all the work that the Obama administration did to bolster Iran in the region, thinking that this was some kind of way to balance things out. You know, you don't have to believe in a, in a conspiracy theory that, you know, Obama was pro-Iran or that Valerie Jarrett, his very trusted and closest advisor, uh, was, 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 a, was an Iranian spy. You don't have to believe any of those conspiracy theories. All you need to do is take a look at the policies that the Obama administration pursued that have been reported on in many occasions where to, to get the nuclear uh, powers deal, the, the Iran nuclear deal through, all the things that the Obama administration turned a blind eye to when it came to Iran. All that stuff is in the public record, and it's true. So you don't have to believe any conspiracy theories, and I don't, I don't suge suggest you do. Just take a look at the policies. And the policy was so pro-Iranian and so dismissive of, of, of Iran's terror goals that it absolutely encouraged more Iranian-backed terror against Israel. And now we hope that we're turning a page going into a different direction. Now the third thing is something that's very, very brief, but I want everyone to watch it, and it should be from, if you're a tech head, a gear head, or a military enthusiast, I want you to take a look at it. I have reposted it on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle. Please check that out. I have reposted an incredible video that I hope you've seen so far. One of the other things that made it a very eventful week in Israel is that the Israelis carried out one of their most extensive uh, attacks on Syria in many years, and it was probably the most at extensive attack by Israel on Iranian targets inside Syria in many years. And there's an amazing video that, again, I posted on my Twitter feed, a number of other people have posted it, of the surface-to-air missiles from Syria going up against those Israeli jets that were carrying out this attack on Monday night of last week. So we're talking about Monday, November 18th. And you can see that the missiles going up in the air towards the Israeli jets, and they suddenly change direction and head back towards the ground, and in at least a couple of cases, right back towards the missile launchers and destroying them. 
and military experts agree that the Israelis have somehow hacked that anti-aircraft missile system and got those missiles to change direction. So three fascinating things that made it last week an even bigger game changer than I thought. We'll see what happens this week. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nahum Sleepo Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.